Yeah, there is a study which I don't know if I sent it to you, but it basically said that having acne after the age of 30, it's, mm. it's, it's a serious sign of systemic disease. So it's not a cosmetic, locally co- cosmetic, local cosmetic issue. It's a yeah. sign slash symptom of something else going on. When you were younger, yeah, well, actually, it's really the same cause. It's the hormonal issues that are causing acne at a younger age, especially puberty, which is when basically both men and women start to synthesize a lot of these aromatizable androgens and the adrenals go into an overdrive. Uh, the same things, if they start happening at, you know, at, at adulthood and, and or middle age, it's usually a sign that the same hormonal issues are recurring. Um, and basically, in order for these hormonal issues to, re- they're not supposed to recur after puberty. You're supposed to stabilize. But it only, that cannot, it's only possible if thyroid function controls uh, the adrenals. If thyroid function starts to lag, then all of these hormonal problems that contributed to puberty, which and really puberty is, ty- is basically the first sign of systemic stress. You're going through it, and the, the, pur- the purpose of puberty is basically to allow you to procreate. So the earlier puberty starts, essentially the poor health that you're in, because it's a sign from the environment that basically the environment cannot really support very long and productive life. So you should start reproducing as quickly as possible to maximize the chance that, you know, you're going to pass off your genes, that you're going to have a progeny, right? And then it's been shown that uh, women who have, uh, and both men and women who have late puberty, in other words, the the later it starts, the, the longer these people live. And the healthier the, the children that they beget and create, right? And the, the fewer numbers of chronic disease that they have later in age. And, and perhaps the later that the menopause will occur, correct? Exactly, exactly. So late puberty is associated with late menopause and conversely, early puberty with early menopause. Both of these are known as highly reliable predictors of all kinds of cancers in women, not just the breast cancer. The, uh, the neurodegenerative diseases, um, Parkinson, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, uh, pretty much every aut- other autoimmune, autoimmune condition as well. So if acne recurs after the age of 30, chances are you're experiencing the same hormonal imbalances as you were when you were 12 slash 13. Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturate, creator of pro-metabolic supplements and seriously saturated skincare. And I actually can't believe that I'm saying this, but our skincare is available for sale right now for pre-sales. So we started pre-sales on Monday and they will continue for a week. And I actually just can't believe that it's here. We have been formulating this skincare and trying to get this skincare to you for three years. I should actually record a podcast with them and just talking about all the roadblocks and bumps and hiccups that we've had along the way. But you know what they say, all good things take time. And we're so proud of what we've created you know, we really believe in the product and we just love it so much ourselves. And I've just, my skin feels the best it's ever been. And so we thought we'd record this podcast today. Well, obviously we didn't record it today, but we recorded it with Georgie a few weeks ago and release it in the week that we uh, launched the skincare. So, you know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about how skin really is the mirror of your internal health. So we talk about, you know, how your diet can affect your skin, If you're getting skin issues after 30, what it actually means, how protein deficiency can lead to skin problems, how stress affects skin breakouts. 
what dietary changes you can make to improve your skin quality and breakouts, um, you know, what you should be putting on your skin. And the problem with many of the ingredients in popular skin uh, care products and then the ingredients in our products and why we actually why we actually chose them. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Georgie always just brings so much great information to the podcast. We've had him on numerous times before. So I'd get a pen and paper and write every write, take notes. And uh, please give us a rating and a review. So you can rate and review the podcast as many times as you like. So give us a rating and review for this specific episode. And for extra bounty points and the chance to win a gift pack of the new Saturate Skincare, all you need to do is take a screenshot of this episode, share it on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D and share your biggest takeaways and just obviously make sure you tag me so that I know that it's you. And I'm going to pick one winner from those that have shared and they will receive the full Saturay gift pack. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Oh, hi, guys. Welcome back to the uh, podcast. Emma and Georgie, does, they don't need an introduction. They've been on the podcast. Well, Georgie's done lots of different stuff with us. He's been on the podcast once. Emma's been on the podcast loads. <laughs> So most people will know uh, who they are, but I wanted to get them back on again just to talk about acne and breakouts and what actually causes them. And then we're going to talk more about, you know, what to actually use on your skin because I think, um, well, obviously people know that Emma and I have created skincare, which has taken two and a half years, and Georgie has been a huge help to Emma. I was going to say to me, I haven't done anything in the formulating, Um, but a huge help to Emma um in formulating that so I'm just trying to think about where we should start because I think the feeling that I get from clients is that come to me is that they think that they need to treat it topically like they go and do all these funny things on their skin or they take that bloody um what's that really bad one that a lot of people with acne take proacetate it's like a synthetic vitamin e derivative yeah yeah so you know they do all these crazy things and we've had some and probably the one that comes to mind is april our coach she had like cystic acne when she started with us and she's been with us for years now and just through a process of the diet changes and you know she stopped training like a crazy woman it took a while though her skin now is really clear she's got some scarring but she doesn't have that cystic acne anymore And, you know, she didn't do all the typical things like drink green smoothies and eat heaps of nuts and cut sugar and cut dairy. So I just thought this could be a really helpful podcast to women who are struggling with skin issues. So I guess, um, you know, acne and pimples, like what actually causes them? A couple of reasons. Perhaps the most common one is basically the uh, overproduction of sebum um, in the skin. And that is usually driven by high levels of, uh, of aromatizable androgens, uh, specifically DHEA, the adrenal androgens. Um, and what happens is that basically uh, in some people, there is an overactive adrenal system, which is usually a result of suppressed thyroid function because then the adrenals basically get reactivated to pick up the slack. So if you don't, if, you, if your thyroid is not working well, then the only way for the body to keep you alive is to run you on stress hormones. And people that are younger, acne usually tends to present in people under the age of 40. People that are younger, when their adrenals get activated, they produce cortisol, but they also produce another steroid known as dehydroepiandrosterone or DHEA. And it's released there uh, by the adrenals in order to counterbalance uh, or, or at least negate some of the catabolic effects that cortisol has. 
Um, so basically, when DHEA is released in sufficient amounts, um, it ba- circulates, and then in the in the skin, it gets metabolized into even more potent androgens, um, and that increases the production of sebum by the skin, which is a mixture. Sebum is a mixture of lipids and waxes. Uh, and what happens is that there's a b- type of bacteria, I think called propionum bacterium or something, and it uses uh, the, the sebum as a source, as a food, and then the presence of the bacteria in the pores creates an inflammatory, localized inflammatory reaction, which is what causes the pimples and the pus, uh, you know, to, to uh, accumulate. And, 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 and it stays there for as long as you have this, this overproduction of sebum. So they discovered a long time ago that if you administer anti-androgens, um, you, you can decrease the local production of sebum in the skin, right? But unfortunately, some of those drugs, which is, as we mentioned, the synthetic uh, vitamin A derivatives, such as isotretinoin, also known as Accutane, under the trade name Accutane, they are potent anti-androgens, and yes, they may fix the acne problem, uh, temporarily, of course, because as soon as you stop taking it, then unless the underlying disorder is corrected, which is the low thyroid and high adrenal function, then the acne will come back. But what's worse is that while you're taking this synthetic strong anti-androgen, it's really difficult to metabolize, really difficult to excrete from the body. You can cause some severe endocrine problems, um, and it tends to tends to manifest, especially in males. It can cause infertility, sometimes even sterility, definitely problems with sexual function. But in women, especially if they take it during pregnancy, it can cause e- extremely severe birth defects. So uh, you know, really nasty st- stuff, and it's not—it's really not not supposed to be used because there are much more natural and effective remedies that are much safer. One of them is the the family, the tetracycline family of antibiotics, especially minocycline, which has been used as acne treatment for I would say more than fifty years at this point. Um, and even low dosages in the range of twenty to fifty milligrams daily uh, seem to help tremendously. And uh, initially, people thought that this is due to the antibacterial effect of, this, of these antibiotics, um, but then it turned out that's, that's not the whole story. Something else is going on, and it looks like, basically, minocycline has an anti-stress and anti-estrogen effect, and it basically calms down the adrenals, so there's less production of estrogen and DHEA as well. So it has this, this uh, dual effect, and it's also a quinone. So it helps restore metabolism. It doesn't work directly on the thyroid function, uh, but it helps to to speed up the oxidative phosphorylation portion of the metabolism because it is an electron withdrawing agent. Uh, and other antibiotics tend to also tend to work, but not nearly as well as the tetracyclines. And since all tetracyclines are quinone type molecules, they withdraw electrons, they speed up metabolism. Uh, this this suggests that the acne problem is is metabolic in nature. Um, other things that have been found to help is sometimes people get acne when they get really bad um, intestinal irritation because that can also increase the, the, the basically the synthesis of estrogen and cortisol and DHEA. So people taking laxatives by accident have noticed that their acne uh, uh, outbreak, outbreaks greatly diminish or sometimes even completely disappear. So that's another common problem that most people probably don't even know that their intestinal, the GI tract health is very important for how for how your skin is going to look like. So, and I was just going to say, and maybe Emma can talk about this, um, in the article that Emma did with Georgie, if you haven't read it, you should definitely read it. It's called, I think it's Skin Breakouts Broken Down with Georgie Dinkov. And you talk about in that, that basically the biggest things internally affect the skin are digestive health and hormonal health. So Emma, how do women 
um, get to this place where they have this terrible hormonal health and this terrible digestive health? Like what are they doing? Well, I think it comes back to so many of the diets they've experienced or experimented with over the years. And most clients who come to me will will say it in these words, but they'll say, I've tried everything. I've done every diet out there. And when you look back at the most popular, you know, diets that are meant to be healthy, um, either they're overloaded on the salads or the nuts and seeds, um, the whole grains, the things that, you know, yeah, people go out of their way thinking I'm doing so, so much good because that's what they're told and I get it. But um, over time, when you stop to look at them, these aren't what we call fundamentally digestible foods. They're not, um, they're not made for the human digestive tract. They're, they're probably the hardest foods to digest. We're talking about cellulose and all the grit on the, the husk on the seeds and the nuts. And um, it's just crazy that these are the foods that are touted as being so helpful but they just don't mix with our digestive enzymes. We don't have the cellulase. We don't have the capacity to break down these fibrous elements. So whether they're causing themselves intestinal harm and irritation or they're building up their small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because these foods we can't digest directly, so they're left for the bacteria to thrive on. Um, And to stop and have to consider what are digestible foods in the first place, I think that's the big one that most women try to, have to get their head around it makes sense to them once you explain it but um yeah just considering the human digestive tract and what matches with that and all of a sudden not only does their skin start to calm down and clear up but all their other digestive symptoms go away and the things that they just thought were normal you know just aren't aren't an issue anymore but um yeah it's just these you look at the most popular diets out there the ones that most women feel pressured to to try and stick with regardless of their symptoms and they're not conducive to digestion. So, you know, we have one about digestible foods and it seems so simple, but these, these aren't the foods that are being pushed as healthy foods. Mm. Yeah. There was a study, which I don't know if I sent it to you, but it basically said that having acne after the age of 30, it's, Mm. it's, it's a serious sign of systemic disease. So it's not a cosmetic locally cosmetic local cosmetic issue it's a science symptom of something else going on when you were younger yeah well actually it's really the same cause it's the hormonal issues that are causing acne at a younger age especially puberty which is when basically both men and women start to synthesize a lot of these aromatizable androgens and the adrenals go into an overdrive uh, the same things if they start happening at you know at, at adulthood and, and or middle age it's usually a sign that the, the same hormonal issues are recurring um, and basically, in order for these hormonal issues to, re- they're not supposed to recur after puberty. You're supposed to stabilize, but that only that can is only possible if thyroid function controls uh, the adrenals. If thyroid function starts to lag, then all of these hormonal problems that contributed to puberty, which and really puberty is ty- is basically the first sign of systemic stress. You, you're going through it, and the the pur- the purpose of puberty is basically to allow you to procreate. So the earlier puberty starts. Essentially, the poor health that you're in, because it's a sign from the environment that basically the environment cannot really support very long and productive life. So you should start reproducing as quickly as possible to maximize the chance that, you know, you're going to pass off your genes, that you're going to have a progeny, right? And then it's been shown that uh, women who have, uh, and both men and women who have late puberty, in other words, the the later it starts, the, the longer these people live. 
and the healthier the, the children that they beget and create, right? And the, the fewer numbers of chronic disease that they have later in age. And, and perhaps the later that the menopause will occur, correct? Exactly, exactly. So late puberty is associated with late menopause and conversely, early puberty with early menopause. Both of these are known as highly reliable predictors of all kinds of cancers in women, not just the breast cancer. The, uh, the neurodegenerative diseases, um, Parkinson, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, uh, pretty much every other autoimmune condition as well. So if acne recurs after the age of 30, chances are you're experiencing the same hormonal imbalances as you were when you were 12 slash 13. And by the way, now that age is down to nine or even eight, depending on, on which country you're talking about. And it's been shown that the poorer and the more war-torn and the more stressful a country is, the younger, like the earlier puberty starts in the children that are born there. Um, so essentially, if you're in your 30s and then you're starting to get acne again, means the exact same stress system is being activated as when you were 12, 13. But the big difference is that at the age of 30 or later, you produce a lot less of the protective steroids, such as pregnenolone and progesterone, that can balance off, and even DHEA, that can balance off some of the stress hormones, such as cortisol and estrogen. So this means you need to check your thyroid, check your digestion, check your diet, uh, maybe run some blood work, see see uh, which hormones are out of whack, and try to address them. So it's not necessarily a strictly, actually, it's lo- most likely not a localized cosmetic issue. So even if you're taking an antibiotic like minocycline, it will be a Band-Aid, right? Even though it's a good therapy, much safer than the uh, isotretinoin, uh, slash Accutane, you should actually be looking deeper and, and seeing what's going on with your hormonal production uh, because you shouldn't be having really any any prolonged acne uh, outbreaks after the age of about 30, I would say, for most people. And well, it's you- like with any... Oh, sorry. Can you- sorry, go, 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 and then ask Well, it's like with any symptoms, isn't it? And particularly acne, we tend to compartmentalize it and go, well, it's just a skin condition, but maybe if anything, go to a dermatologist or a skin therapist or take a product. And if we see those breakouts go away or calm down, we go, okay, acne dealt with. But instead, we should see it as your body screaming out, telling you it's struggling at a deeper level. And that's just an outward symptom of an imbalance that's deeply rooted inside that needs to be addressed. So just by masking that and sticking stuff on it and using tonics and potions, even if they do seem to, you know, visually work for you, um, you're missing out on what the body's trying to tell you and what needs to be addressed really deeply because, as Georgie mentioned, I mean, this is a sign of your overall health and the things that you want to avoid later in life, and this is it. Yeah, so there is a, uh, several studies have shown that there, there is a correlation between acne and several types of cancers, so that alone should tell you that the acne is not just a localized cosmetic uh, problem, and they're not skin cancers. We're talking about cancers that are, you know, especially the female cancers of the endometrium, uh, the uh, the ovaries, um, you know, the breast cancer, of course, right? Liver cancer, colon cancer. So there's an association with them. And since now we know that at least some of those cancers are hormonally driven, the doctors should be able to put two and two and say, okay, if this person is having a recurring acne outbreaks, right? I mean, every once in a while you get stressed out. And I've noticed that uh, I, I know some people who are in their 40s and when they have a, a experience a severe amount of stress, sometimes they'll get a pimple here and there, Right. I mean, even though that's not optimal because it's still a sign of, you know, of a hormonal issue, it tends to disappear after a day or two. But if you're, re- you're getting, keep getting these outbreaks, especially women, if they keep getting them around their period for as long as they're having their period, premenopause, 
then that speaks of an endocrine issue underlying that needs to be addressed. By all means, use the cream, of course, use the antibiotics, use the safer things to make yourself look better, but always keep in mind that the skin is like the mirror of your internal systemic health. Anything goes wrong with your, especially digestive health or adrenal or thyroid health, you'll likely be able to see it on the skin. There is a famous, uh, not famous, but there's a subsection of so-called traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, which specializes in diagnosing systemic conditions simply by examining skin symptoms. Um, And the same thing now is happening in Western medicine, so-called allopathic medicine. Dermatologists are now basically learning that they can recognize the presence of several severe conditions, including some cancers, uh, I can send you some links. That, I mean, there some of some of them are very well known symptoms, like uh, having you know large brown spots on the skin, especially on the back, is a well known clinically established sign of colon cancer. Also known to be caused by estrogen, because estrogen is the hormone of pigmentation, uh, increasing it, while progesterone is the opposite. Um, so there are several of these signs slash symptoms on the skin on the surface that are that are, that speak to a much deeper problem. And the Chinese knew this, you know, 10, 12 centuries ago, but now it's making itself into Western medicine as well. Uh, and, a, and a good dermatologist, basically, he or she was supposed to ask you how long you've had the acne breaks out for, how long they last, right? Are they correlated with any kind of an event in your life, such as, you know, having your period or like, you know, basically stressful period at, at, um, at work, at home. Maybe somebody's going through a divorce or like having a new child, these kind of things. And then a good dermatologist should be able to do a, uh, you know, uh, run even a basic hormonal profile and try to correlate the two and see how things relate. Um, they shouldn't automatically be, you know, prescribing this toxic vitamin A derivative um, and sending it off, right? I mean, that's that's just a pill pusher. Uh, you need to probably to check with another doctor. Um, and sometimes the primary care practitioner, the GP, uh, would be able to to notice these signs too. Um, in the United States now, they have they've changed the guidelines, the screening guidelines, and the new guidelines do include um, a, a basically a, a screening test, which the you know the nurse or the general practitioner is supposed to check. If you show up with basically a, if you if you're an adult and you repeatedly show up with outbreaks on your face or elsewhere on the body, they will actually run the hormonal test without even, even you asking for them. Mm-hmm. Um, medicine is starting to recognize that the acne, even though it, it is a cosmetic issue, it's, it is itself uh, just a sign slash symptom of something else going on, usually hormonal. Uh, in some people, it's, it's, it's related to gut irritation, and the two are not mutually exclusive because if you chronically irritate your gastrointestinal tract, this will mess up your hormones as well. It will increase estrogen and cortisol. It will suppress the production of the protective hormones. And basically, you know, you, you, no matter, unless you change the diet so that you avoid irritating your intestine, these issues will not disappear um, because most of the other remedies that are given uh, will be patchwork, right? I mean, you need to look at, you need to uh, find the, the closest cause to the root cause as possible. Uh, and if the digestion is the root cause, then it needs to be addressed because everything else further down, the further down you go, the more patchworky it becomes. Um, and, and the most patchwork of all these, uh, uh, you know, remedies will be simply, you know, putting the cream on and hoping it goes away. It probably will go away, but it will be resolving the issue. So could you talk about, because um, uh, I've just, and this is just reminding me of this friend that I've got. She's like in her 30s and she's got like bad acne, but, you know, like with your friends, you can't talk to them about diet or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like religion. But I, you know, have hung around her enough to know like she under eats, 
she probably mm-hmm. wouldn't think she under eats. She eats, you know, like healthy, like I used to eat. You know, Emma talked about the green veggies and pufas and, you know, doesn't eat a heap of fruit, you know, doesn't eat liver, you know, mm-hmm. um, just that typical healthy um, healthy diet. And in the article you guys talked about um, like low thyroid function. So you think a lot of women are undernourished, you know, they're yeah. not getting the right nutrients, they're not getting enough energy in as well. Yeah. So that affects thyroid function, which affects the um, stomach acid production. So yeah. can you talk about, that because I think some women might listen to this and go like Emma talked about the foods that irritate but what about just you know overall they're not eating enough to support the energy that they're expanding every single day and I think so many women are like that yeah protein deficiency is a huge thing uh for some reason uh, people in Western societies tend to be protein deficient. Um, they they undereat protein. The, the the minimum amount that is necessary for a proper tissue repair is about one gram protein per kilogram of body weight daily. Mm-hmm. And studies have shown that most people tend to undereat protein and overeat fat, of which most of them that's a waistline too. I don't know yeah. how though. I always say to Craig, I'm like, I just eat heaps. Like I just naturally. I'm like, how do these women eat under 90 grams of protein a day? I just don't even know how. <laughs> I mean, most of, because protein, I found out, at least in the United States, protein of all the three macronutrients is the most expensive for the manufacturers. So I've noticed that no matter what product you buy, basically the majority of the price is correlated to the amount of protein that is inside, unless it is of grain origin, which is extremely cheap to produce. And then the, this correlation between price and amount of protein breaks down. But if you're talking about animal protein, I've looked at eggs, I've looked at milk, I've looked at meat, right? I've looked at seafood. And in all of these kinds of foods, if you calculate how much protein you're buying for a particular amount of money, the ratio is basically almost the same across a wide variety of foods. Um, And I think what basically happens is that most commercial foods that are being produced, if if the vendors are going to skimp on anything, it's going to be the protein, right? Carbs are relatively cheap to come by. and so are the fats, especially if they're PUFA, right? But the one thing that you cannot really um, fake unless it's coming from plant origin uh, is going to be the protein, especially if it's animal protein. And by animal, I mean both land and, you know, and sea animals and also flying around, you know, birds and things like that. Um, so so basically most people eating a Western diet are tend to be protein deficient. And studies have shown that they average about – 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight daily, which is 50% lower than the minimum they would actually need to be healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you want to lose weight or if you're lifting weights or if you're doing any kind of like a very hard physical labor kind of activity, then that requirement, the optimal requirement, goes up by about another half a gram to an extra gram. So like a competitive bodybuilder probably, we should ask Greg, but a competitive bodybuilder probably cannot get away uh, and maintain this physique that, you know, wins medals by eating any, any, anything less than, I would say, two to three grams per kilogram of body weight of protein daily. It's just not possible. You know, you, these muscles are made of protein. Uh, and unless you replenish the, that protein through the diet, there is no, there's no other place that the protein can, can, uh, can come from. Uh, you know, this, we cannot synthesize it. We can synthesize some amino acids, but not all of the essential ones that are necessary for, for the for the building of muscles and many other many other kinds of tissues collagen which is 30 percent of the bone is collagen and skin then you can get it by eating collagen or you can synthesize some of these amino acids but you cannot synthesize some of the uh, the essential ones such as methionine uh, 
uh, lysine, um, let's see, the brand chain amino acids especially, those cannot really be synthesized by eating fat or sugar. So you have to eat that protein. If you don't, then your tissues will basically start getting, start falling apart. And, and several studies have found that so-called autoimmune conditions can sometimes be corrected simply by eating extra protein because the, you know, the, the hypothesis of these studies is that the autoimmune condition is simply a particular organ or tissue starting to break down. And then the, jo the job of the immune system is to get rid of that debris. So it starts to produce antibodies towards this organ or tissue that's falling apart. And, you know, to doctors, that looks like your immune system is attacking you, but it's not. It's only producing these antibodies while there are pieces of that tissue in your bloodstream. If you can somehow limit that tissue, the, the presence of that tissue in the bloodstream, the antibodies disappear. And this has been noticed in several people who have been on kidney dialysis uh, with autoimmune conditions. As soon as they put them on dialysis, which filters the blood and removes these anti, uh, I'm sorry, the cellular debris from these organs that are breaking down, these people, these, these people's autoimmune conditions go in remission. And when they get them off of dialysis, then the autoimmune condition reappears again. Why? Because tissue breakdown is always there if they're not eating enough protein. And then the filtering machine got rid of the debris, so the body doesn't need to produce the antibodies, right? But then as soon as you stop the dialysis, the debris is there and the whole process starts again. But if you provide sufficient protein, and also you have to look at the uh, hormonal environment too, because you, you can eat a lot of protein, but if your cortisol is elevated or if your estrogen is elevated, you're in a catabolic state. So this protein will float around. You will not utilize it for building tissue. It will be utilized as fuel because the body can synthesize glucose from protein. So if the protein cannot be utilized to build tissue, which is what it's supposed to be used for, and some neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, thyroid hormone depends on the amino acid L-tyrosine, right? But aside from those, the main role of protein in the body is to actually synthesize tissues, bones, skin, muscle, right, um, um, nails, whatever, you name it. Um, and if your cortisol and, estrogen and or estrogen are high, you will not be in an anabolic state. You'll be in a catabolic state. So all of that extra protein will be wasted. You'll produce a lot of ammonia. And that's why in some people who are very hypothyroid, which means they have high stress hormones, then eating extra protein does not help, right? Uh, it's not going to correct the issue. It may help temporarily. In some people, it doesn't even help. It may even make the issue worse. So basically, the, the, the idea is to check your hormonal status. And if, and if your catabolic slash stress hormones are high, those need to be corrected. Because otherwise, um, you know, pumping yourself full of protein is, is not going to cut it. So what, you know, you talk about, um, so say, you know, women are doing these low-calorie diets, or they're probably just not even eating enough. Like some, yep. kind, like they're just not intentionally not eating enough, but they're just not eating enough. So thyroid function is low. You're not making enough hydrochloric acid. So you talk in yep. the um, article about endotoxin and how that affects the bacteria and that how that then affects the hormones and the skin. Right. Can you talk more about that, Emma or Georgie? Sure. I mean, if you if you're not eating, if if you if you're in a hypothyroid state, you're not producing sufficient amount of the hydrochloric acid in the stomach. That means that even if you're eating easily digestible foods. Um, you know, anything, so without, uh, you can probably uh, assimilate the simple carbs such as uh, glucose, fructose, uh, lactose, maltose, right? Those are pretty easy to assimilate and they can get, get absorbed in the stomach even without much of, of acid being around. However, to digest protein, which is probably the hardest micronutrient to digest, you definitely need that acid. And if it's not there, if it's not in sufficient amounts, this, this, this protein will go through the intestine largely undigested. And once it reaches, 
you know, a portion of the intestine, which in, in hypothyroid people, it's not just the colon, but the small intestine has bacteria too, hence the conditions SIBO, right? Then this bacteria will start digesting that protein and not only releasing ammonia and releasing endotoxin, but also creating some really toxic amine byproducts. And uh, the names of them are, are, are pretty uh, pretty telling. Uh, one of them is known as cadaverine, you know, comes from cadaver. The other one is called putrescine. It comes from putrid. So in people who are hypothyroid and are eating plenty of animal protein, they tend to develop this bad body odor and also, you know, uh, bad breath odor. Um, because, and sometimes they really smell like a toilet. And people are like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, like, you, you, is your hygiene bad? Like, you're not taking showers? It's not that. It's that they're basically, I mean, th- there's food decaying in the intestine, uh, literally decaying. And it's, it's creating, it's feeding the bacteria. Bacteria over, over proliferates, produces endotoxin, uh, which causes inflammation, right? Which as soon as inflammation goes up, your cortisol is going to go up. That's, that, that is its second main function. The first one is keeping blood sugar from falling too low because your brain relies mostly on, you know, on blood sugar. And cortisol is basically trying to keep your brain alive. But if, you know, that function aside, the second major role of cortisol is inflammation. Anything that triggers chronic inflammation in the body, and endotoxin is probably the best endogenous agent for doing so, because you, we eat at least three times a day. So if you're producing endotoxin three times a day, your cortisol will spike up three times a day. And if you do this long enough, then eventually cortisol establishes a higher baseline, and it just stays there. There you go. You're in a catabolic state automatically. So, you, you know, even if you start eating more digestible foods, um, basically cortisol has, has reset to a higher level. And sometimes, you know, you need to take measures to lower the cortisol uh, because diet alone is just, just not cutting it. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's really what happens when you eat uh, poorly digestible foods. Also, if you overstress yourself. Now, you may eat a good diet. Maybe you're producing a sufficient amount of hydrochloric acid. But if you stress yourself too much, and your thyroid function declines, carbon dioxide production will also automatically decline because it is a byproduct of the proper oxidative metabolism. No thyroid means no oxidative metabolism, which means no carbon dioxide. No carbon dioxide means no hydrochloric acid. And again, you're back to uh, maldigesting these foods and then feeding endotoxin, feeding the bacteria. And even that alone by itself can actually give you the acne simply because endotoxin has this chronic inflammatory effect on the body. And even without the bacteria present in your skin, eating, digesting the sebum and, and basically causing a localized inflammatory reaction, you can get pimples simply by having too much endotoxin in your blood. Uh, it has been shown in animal studies that, you know, sometimes they inject the rodents directly with endotoxin and sometimes the rodents will get this localized inflammatory reaction to the skin, which looks like a rash, but over time, and if it's the endotoxin dosage is high enough, it can turn into the pimples that look exactly like, like acne. So mm-hmm. chronic stress, chronic under-eating, uh, especially protein uh, deficiency, dietary protein deficiency, um, you know, all of these things, one or more, uh, can cause basically, uh, you know, uh, skin issues or can cause digestive issues, which ultimately can cause skin issues. Um, and, okay. and they need to be addressed. Well, then you get into that cycle where I see so many people who said, oh, my last practitioner said, because my my pimples are being caused by dairy, so I have to cut out dairy, rather than seeing perhaps they were hypothyroid, bacterial overgrowth, uh, low stomach acid, and they couldn't even deal with, with milk, with eggs. Eggs would make them flare up. So instead they just take all those foods away and just keep doing what they're doing and lead themselves to a further protein deficiency. 
Yeah, exactly. And then you're in a, in a worse state than you started because now your metabolic rate is lower. Once you start losing muscle, which is what happens when you're in a chronic catabolic state, uh, once you start losing muscle over time, you can get to a point where basically you're gaining weight even on a very low calorie diet. Uh, elite athletes, I always tell this to people who email me about dieting. Elite athletes almost never go into caloric restriction. If they have to lose weight, they would lose it by either water restriction or they're taking diuretic drugs, or they're taking steroids that are known as anabolic slash androgenic steroids, but they almost never diet because they know this is extremely detrimental, can put them in a very bad state, um, especially the, the, the so-called power athletes. Sprinters, power lifters, bodybuilders, these people do not diet. They, they may change their, I mean, they, they don't do fasting. They may change their, their, the, the macronutrients a little bit, depending on what state of their, you know, of their career they're in, right? I mean, when they're off season, they probably, you know, eat more calorie dense foods, they bulk up and they may eat more fat, but then towards, you know, when they get it closer to the competition, then they lean out, they basically eat more lean protein and more easily digestible carbs, they cut down on the fats. But the ones that I know, the elite athletes that I know, they do not, uh, they will do some pretty dangerous stuff sometimes, such as take too much thyroid hormone T3, very common and very popular in athletic circles for using uh, uh, circles for losing weight. Some of them use the some of them use the old drug for losing weight known as DNP, dinitrophenol, extremely effective, but very dangerous because you can overdose easily and basically overheat and can kill you with, from a heat stroke. But it's it's out there and athletes use it all the time. And the ones that may have, have that have uh, that are under the care of a doctor or have sufficient knowledge of steroids, then they inject steroids. You can, I mean, multiple studies have shown that you can take morbidly obese people, males, and if you inject them with sufficient amount of testosterone, they become lean and V-shaped again. So if this is known, and they they continue to eat as much as they want in the face of known changed dietary habits, that these people can be eating Twinkies and cake and whatnot for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but if you pump them full of testosterone, which I don't recommend, but it just demonstrates the point. It's it's an endocrine disorder, right? So if you got yourself to be an overweight or an active person, or you know you had a uh, you have a severe digestive issue, it is usually an, an endocrine disorder, often combined with with uh, choosing the like a like a less than optimal macronutrients, especially the grains, the poorly digestible grains. Uh, few things feed endotoxin as much as those grains. Because the bacteria can digest these, the, the, you know, it's the easiest thing for the bacteria to digest. Uh, protein is hard for bacteria to digest, harder. So the bacteria doesn't particularly like it. But if you send it protein, you'll eat protein. It doesn't really have much of a choice. So, um, Emma, what would you say, like, what are some dietary changes that people can make and focus on if they're trying to improve their skin? I think like George was saying, you know, when you get yourself in such a state and you know, thyroid is that that low. Um, beyond tracking down Georgie's stuff and looking into some, dabbling with some of his wonderful Tyronix and Tyromax and things like that, um, I think getting it back to basics as you always, you know, educate your clients with Kitty, but perhaps making it easier on their digestion to start with, making sure there's sufficient protein definitely, perhaps with smaller, more frequent meals, put less load on the system. Um, I think salt's really important too and it's something that's still so many people are scared to really amp up their salt. Mm. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, the vitamin A and all the, the precursors to generating, you know, healthy 
Yeah, but this is another thing too, isn't it? Um, and that's one thing I wanted to, you know, quiz you on, Georgie, is that with the, the vitamin A thing, you talk about the um, synthetic, quite toxic forms of vitamin A that you use to treat skin conditions. And there's that association with that. And for women who are pregnant or wanting to get pregnant, that's sort of ingrained in them, you know, caution those because of birth defects. But then they associate that vitamin A with healthy food source vitamin A. And, and a lot I get asked, but, but should I be eating liver if I'm considering getting pregnant? Or what if I'm pregnant? Now my obstetrician has recommended to cut back on dairy, definitely don't touch liver. Anything with vitamin A they're terrified of because of birth defects where, yeah. you know, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but there was some great articles that Ray sent me years ago and looking at the only birth defects that really did that were really were associated with vitamin A were due to synthetic vitamin A's at super high doses. Yep. yep. A million units per day. And hopefully, I mean, those kind of, those are used on people with leukemia, um, the well-established uh, treatment. And of course, uh, back in the day when there weren't the synthetic vitamins, uh, with synthetic versions available, they were using, they were using plain old retinol, vitamin A to treat leukemia. And now, of course, if you ask the doctors, they don't want you to mention that because it's going to destroy their sales. So, mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, back in the day when they were using up to a million units a day to treat leukemia, they noticed no toxic side effects, no liver failure, because that's what, that's nothing they scare with. It's going to kill your liver, right? None of these side effects were seen with either plain retinol, uh, you know, ideally preformed retinoic acid, but it's really expensive and hard to find, and usually only chemical companies sell it. Retinol is more available, but it's relatively unstable. So the most common uh, supplements with vitamin A use one of the esters, like retinol palmitate or retinyl acetate, and those still metabolize in the body to retinol. Still, even if you use up to a million units a day, which for acne is is a tremendously high dose, most people who use vitamin A for acne use like maybe 50 to 100,000 units a day, and that's plenty. And at those dosages, there's never been shown to be a birth defect uh, in a human or an animal. Um, all of the birth effects, as you said, were seen in, uh, in animals or humans using one of the synthetic varieties, um, and especially the, the infamous Accutane. And now they're thinking that one of the reasons is because it has such a, such a long half-life and the molecule itself, it's really uh, incompatible with many of the other enzymes in the body. So it treats it as a toxin, but it's hard to, hard to get rid of because it stays in the tissue for so long. Um, so all of these uh, fear-mongering tactics apply uh, strictly to the synthetic versions. And uh, some people will say, well, retinyl palmitate and acetate are also synthetic, which is true. But keep in mind that those two forms are uh, the, the preferred forms of the liver to store vitamin A that we're getting from the diet. So if you're eating, even if you're eating beta carotene, which is from carrots, and the body converts it to retinol inside of the body, beta carotene is a precursor to retinol. Uh, then the body is not going to store retinol in its pure form. It's going to convert it to an ester, such as palmitate or acetate, and it will store it in the liver. So, so even though yes, those are also synthetic forms, they're actually precursors to the natural to the natural version of retinol which our body uses, and they, they have not been shown to have any toxic effects. However, the non-metabolizable versions, especially Accutane, are known to cause all of these terrible side effects, and that's something to stay away from. Um, as far as I wanted to mention a, a dietary intervention, if people want to take thyroid, but they don't want to take thyroid supplement, um, uh, one thing that is probably accessible to everybody, and it's actually dirt cheap, is fish heads. So you go to your fish market, 
and you get basically, I don't know, 20, uh, two dozen or three dozen fish heads and you make soup out of them. Um, you know, there are plenty of recipes online, just like fish head soup. And it's a, it's a delicacy actually in uh, Southeast Asian countries. And in fact, they eat the fish head and they eat the ice. To me, that's gross. But the, uh, I'm after the broth. So after you boil the fish heads for a while, because the fish head contains the thyroid and it's not easy to remove. So it's still there in vast majority of cases. So if you make fish head soup, you're basically going to be ingesting natural desiccated thyroid. Actually, in this case, is boiled. It's not desiccated. Um, and this will be the same as taking a thyroid supplement. Uh, they Back in the day, you, you used to be able to do the same with, uh, if you buy it from your uh, turkey necks or chicken necks or even goose necks or duck necks, but now they're removing the thyroid from those birds and selling it separately as a drug because it's easier to get to the to the to the thyroid in the actual neck than it is to the um, you know to the to the thyroid gland in the fish head because if you do it with the fish head, the head will be destroyed and they will have nothing left to sell you. So the fish head still contain in the vast majority of cases uh, the the intact thyroid gland and you can make yourself nice homemade thyroid broth. Um, by by doing these uh, fish head soups. Yeah, that's a good tip because I've rung that many chicken farmers, you know, locally to ask about where can I get chicken necks with thyroids attached and all of them are like, we're either not allowed to sell it or we sell it off, we have to destroy it. Um, Just crazy. Old-fashioned chicken soup would have been that much more therapeutic. Incredible. Yep. Nice. So just back to the when we started talking about nutrition, so you know removing some of those like the really hard to digest like undercooked green veg, nuts, seeds, grains, and focusing on like getting adequate calories, easy to digest, and protein and And protein. protein. So I know Emma's like just a number that always floats around in my head that you mentioned is ninety grams, Emma, minimum per day. Very much minimum. I mean, it depends on the woman, but if you already quite small and relatively sedentary that might be enough but anything more than that you probably need a fair bit more so so let's say minimum absolute minimum i mean like most of the women in our program are strength training so they'd be eating a lot more protein than that um gelatinous broths gelatin collagen fruits each digest fruits liver eat the liver eat the bloody liver the oysters Eat kidneys. I would add, eat kidneys. Eat hearts. If you, yeah. I, I don't know if you can oh. stomach them. So start. <laughs> hearts have the highest amounts of testosterone uh, from uh, compared to any other organ except potentially the ovaries and the testicles. And mm-hmm. the reason is that because heart, the heart is a muscle, but it's a really crucial muscle, right? Even if you're extremely sick uh, and your muscles are catabolic and soft and, and atrophied, the heart is the last muscle you want to be affected because you know you're, you're not going to be alive. So the body goes through great lengths to protect the heart at all costs. And one of the main uh, methods through which it does that uh, is basically to, in order to protect the heart from the effects of cortisol, since the heart is a muscle, cortisol is supposed to shred the heart just as easy as any other muscle, but it doesn't happen until the person is extremely ill and about to die, right? So how does the heart get protected? By basically accumulating a large amount of the anti-cortisol steroids. In, in men, that's mostly testosterone, uh, pregnenolone and DHEA in women, that's mostly a little bit of testosterone, DHEA and progesterone. So if you want to be getting some of those anti-catabolic steroids and you don't want to be taking a supplement, just like as with the thyroid, eat the organ meats. The heart has a very high amount of anti-catabolic steroids. The kidneys are actually also pretty good because the kidney usually also has the adrenal glands attached. So you're going to be getting a lot of that, you know, those adrenal steroids as well. Um, and, and the precursors such as pregnenolone. Um, you know, liver, of course, you already mentioned. Spleen is also pretty good. 
the intestine is also pretty good. Recent studies have found that the intestine is actually the second largest steroid producing organ after the skin. Many people think, oh, if I'm a male, most of my testosterone is produced in the testicles. Not true. Most of the testosterone actually is produced in the skin. Uh, and actually now they're finding out it may even be in your gastrointestinal tract if you're actually properly fed. And if you're well-trained, well-trained male or female, most of the testosterone, the androgen, is produced in the muscle as a result of the weight training. But it's only the concentric training, portion of the training that does that it, because it increases the amount of mitochondria and basically turns your cells into the muscles, into these little gonadal organs, and they're pumping out all of these protective steroids. Um, so weightlifting, very important because it protects from the catabolic effects of cortisol, helps you build more muscle, and helps you utilize more of that protein that you're ingesting for muscle building and organ building purposes. If you're not in a sort of like a well-trained state, if your mitochondria is not working well and you overfeed yourself, basically the body won't, don't, doesn't know what to do with that extra food, especially if it's protein, because it, it's not supposed to be using it as, as fuel, but it will because if it cannot use it, right, and it's already in the bloodstream, uh, it cannot really store it in terms of protein because you're not in a anabolic environment, right? You're in a catabolic environment. So it's going to convert it to something that it can burn as fuel for energy. And you don't want to be burning protein for energy. It's been shown multiple times that if you do that for long enough, you can fry your kidneys. You can cause yourself chronic kidney disease uh, very easily, much like a diabetic person. Um, so, yeah, so organs are very important. And traditional cultures, the aboriginals, uh, I think they tend to, they actually buy, their, their, I was reading somewhere that their myths require them to eat all, almost the entire animal except for the skin. I don't know if that's true or not, but it matches what many other indigenous cultures are known for doing. They're, they don't go for the lean meat, like at the legs or like the breast. They actually prefer the organ meats first. Well, they know. They know they're the most nutritious. Um, and what about uh, carrot salad, bamboo shoots, and mushrooms? We haven't talked and, about And charcoal. I would even add charcoal. Oh. If people are really busy... And, and they can't, basically, they don't have time to shred the carrot or, like, boil the, 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 the bamboo shoots um, or boil the, boil the mushrooms, then, um, you know, at least for me, uh, charcoal seems to work really well. I know Ray is not particularly fond of it because he's afraid that in some people with a compromised uh, uh, intestinal uh, tissue, that it may absorb into the bloodstream. It can trigger an allergic reaction. But of all the people that have emailed me through the years and have tried even the commercial brands, not a single one of them has complained about digestive issues from charcoal. And mm -hmm. it works just like the, uh, actually even better. Um, and I, somebody asked Ray if he had to choose between the different versions, like uh, charcoal, carrot salad, uh, mushrooms, and bamboo shoots, which one he would do uh, regularly for like intestinal disinfection and limiting endotoxin. He said, by far charcoal, if you can guarantee that it's good quality and it's not going to absorb into the bloodstream. But since he didn't know of such a good source, he he goes with those um, uh, with with the plant. What do you use, Georgie? What charcoal yes. do you use? Uh, there's, I mean, I, several brands. The most popular one in my local store is a brand called Now Foods, and another yeah. one is Nature's Way. I think they're available in Australia too. They're everywhere. What about um, Emma? What's the other one? I think sometimes you've said from um, Health Natura. Is that not? Yeah, okay? they're, they're I mean, yeah, I, I haven't tried theirs, but it should it should be okay. Uh, I think the powder tends yeah. to be probably better quality because for the pill, they or the vendors almost always add something to the pill. Like uh, you know, and because most laws in the in various countries, I know in the U.S. and Australia, they're pretty similar. If it's below a certain amount per capsule, they're not even required to report it. So you mm -hmm. can have 
like a sufficient amount of silicon dioxide, talc, titanium dioxide, or any or other irritating things in the capsule that are such a small, well, small amount, uh, you know, small enough to not be reported, but plenty, you know, plenty enough to irritate your your intestine and cause like an allergic reaction or inflammatory reaction. So power well, actually, is... Actually, one tip you gave me, Georgie, too, was the combination of charcoal and coconut oil. Yes. To bring coconut oil further down into the bowel. Exactly. And I had a, exactly. a client who read our article and she, she came up with a great idea rather than just taking a capsule, dipping in coconut oil. She mixes the charcoal with melted coconut oil, sets that in the fridge and cuts up little oh, tablets of that. Yeah. Perfect. Takes Perfect. that all at once. Mm. Yeah. Because it solidifies and then she can just, you know, take a chunk and, 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 and eat it. Mm. Yeah, and how much? You know, they've been trying to use coconut oil for a long time as an antibacterial, and they've already proven beyond any any reasonable doubt that it has strong antibacterial effects uh, against both the gram positive and the gram negative type of bacteria, which is really good. It means it works, it's working just like an antibiotic, and the bacteria does not seem to be able of, of to to develop resistance to it, which is very good because even with the best antibiotic, eventually you tend to create species of bacteria that are left that are basically resistant to that antibiotic. Um, so, but coconut oil and some of the quinones, such as methylene blue, the emodin, right? The, and even the tetracycline antibiotics, they're antibiotics, but they're also, they're producing reactive oxygen species that can kill the bacteria by direct contact. And no bacteria cannot develop resistance to that. It's just a feature of physical property of living systems that, Reactive oxygen species are dangerous to them, right? Um, so basically, coconut oil seems to have some of those effects that are that can kill any kind of bacteria almost. But the problem is, if you ingest it, almost all of it, because it's so easily absorbed, gets gets into your bloodstream, right? And it doesn't get in sufficient amounts to the to the uh, uh, to the uh, lower tracts of the of the gastrointestinal system. But if you mix coconut oil with charcoal, or even actually the carrot salad, because it has a lot of cellulose, it's going to bind those fatty acids, and a lot of them will actually get reach the colon undigested, and then on contact, they tend to directly kill a large amount of bacteria. Mm. What about um, aspirin? Aspirin is great. If you can actually do the same thing, if you combine aspirin with the charcoal, again, a lot of the aspirin will not absorb We'll get to the to the actual, uh, you know, the bacteria, the portion of the intestine that has the bacteria, and aspirin has a known antibacterial effect. I think I made a thread on the forum, very old one. I posted it, well, old, old. I posted around circa 2014, so seven, almost eight years ago, and it, it showed that aspirin actually, when mixed with garlic and I think vinegar, mm-hmm. uh, some combination of either garlic or vinegar or aspirin or, or garlic, had basically like a very strong antibacterial effect. And the, the study was recent, but it cited older studies from the late 1800s uh, saying that, you know, when people were colonizing remote areas such as Australia or Western United States, that's what they used as an antibiotic. That was their only remedy. And they were using it both on wounds or like for, you know, systemic bacterial infection or even for, you know, um, you know the, the, the GI infections, which typically, you know, cause severe cases of diarrhea, which can kill... Uh, you know, uh, a conqueror through dehydration. Now, if you don't have access to much water or clean water and, you know, and you're crapping your pants, <laughs> pardon for the expression, every couple of minutes, that's a dangerous disease back in the day. You know, to this day, if you're in a remote area, it's a pretty dangerous disease. So they were using this remedy, a mixture of aspirin and vinegar. Um, and um, I forgot what the other one was. Uh, garlic? Yes, yes, a garlic. And that was their antibiotic of the day. I'll find that link and send it to you. Uh, so there are a number of different plant and 
slash natural remedies that have a strong antibacterial effect, but the key is to get them to the to the portion of the intestine that has the bacteria and charcoal, actually any kind of insoluble fiber or charcoal would probably work well to bind them and to send them further down the, the intestine to act as antiseptic antibacterial agents. Because without that, they tend to, no, not they tend to, they get absorbed very quickly, uh, most of them even in the stomach, so they won't even be able to help for SIBO. But if you, you use these uh, you know binding substances together with the antibacterials, you basically get yourself a, a poor man's version of a antibiotic known as, I think it's called uh, rifaximin, uh, is used for specifically for SIBO and for liver disease. And the reason it works for SIBO is because it doesn't absorb. It basically stays entirely in the GI tract and passing through decimates, um, you know, all kinds of bacteria that it, you know, that, that, it, that it encounters. And I know Ray's also talked about washed wheat bran as a, that's another yes. one, which I thought was wheat yeah. we, I think wash, washed wheat bran or old bran, or he said mm. they're relatively safe. Mm. Interesting. So do you think there's anything we haven't covered yet before we move on to now, like what you put on your skin? Uh, let's see. Okay, so digestion, we already covered. Like, you know, keep it well digested. Easily digested. Keep the bacteria in check, right? Um, basically, make sure you get sufficient amount of protein. Uh, check your micronutrients. Do a lot of maybe do uh, uh, the, some basic hormonal tests for for the gonadal, adrenal, and the thyroid hormones. All three together usually tend to work best. Uh, there's any if there's any severe hormonal um, abnormality that may need to be addressed. You know, if some people have a something uh, an adrenal overactivity known as Cushing syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the origin of that Cushing syndrome, sometimes you may need to take a drug that blocks cortisol or like lowers the synthesis of cortisol. It's rare. It's relatively rare, but it's becoming more common because the adrenals, just like any other gland, if you stay in a chronic stre- state of chronic stress, the adrenals adapt by basically upregulating your cortisol level, like I said, and you're not getting quite to the Cushing disease type, which is uh, extreme levels of cortisol produced, uh, triggered by a tumor in your pituitary gland, but you can get halfway there, right? And that's already enough to put you in a really bad catabolic state where basically diet alone is not gonna be enough. So yeah, do the basic hormonal checks, um, and see if anything comes out of there. If everything is within bounds or not extremely abnormal, then the rest will be diet and basically avoiding stress as much as possible. Yeah, I think you nailed like the stress one. I just think about, you know, Emma and I have talked about this, like women that we meet, they're just so stressed, you know, like they're working, they've got kids, they're un- they're doing these crazy diets, they're flogging themselves in the gym, you know, they're yeah. slathering themselves with all these chemicals, like they're not getting enough sun, they're not getting enough sleep. So it's just like this constant crime. And then their diet makes them stress too. The diets are always on, add to the stress. Yeah. Yep. Georgie, it's- I've seen a few people too get good get skin benefits using your cancer style as well. Oh, yes, camphor yes. uh, actually uh, is a very ancient skin remedy. Um, and, and, and I think in India uh, is used actually in some of the Southeast Asian countries like uh, Malaysia and like the Java Island. I don't know if it's part, part of Indonesia, Java and Sumatra, uh, Guinea as well. It's so very close to Australia, really. Uh, the, 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 the camphor, which is extracted from a, the camphor tree, uh, is used as a remedy for all kinds of uh, as a for all kinds of skin conditions, both infectious and well, actually, if the acne is caused by bacteria, I guess we can consider it infectious too. But it's being used specifically for acne. So they they create the solution of camphor, 
um, with with alcohol, any kind of alcohol would do. And then they use a cotton to dab like the problematic spots with, with the camphor and alcohol. But with, with the camphozel, it's actually camphoric acid and ethanol because that's what we use as a solvent. And it contains phenyl salicylate, which is a, a derivative of, of salicylic acid, similar to aspirin. All these three things have an antibacterial and an anti-acne effect. So if people are using camphozal, they can use it orally to, to basically handle any kind of a digestive issue that they may have, but they also may use it topically. I have actually have not thought of recommending people use it topically. You just reminded me. Thank you. Well, well you gave us the idea because we're going to put a bit of camphozal in our cleansers, Kitty, and I think in the face cream as well. But um, okay. yeah, I think you described as being almost perhaps an anti-comedogenic. Like it's... Yes. No, not that it's you know, something, most things already class as being comedogenic or, or not, meaning that they clog pores or they leave pores alone, but this actually helps clear the pores. Yes, all three, ethanol, uh, camphor, or acid, and, and salicylic acid or its derivatives, all three are known as anti-comedogenic, and they think it's mostly because of their antiseptic effect, but I suspect there's a hormonal part here too, because the camphor is known to be anti-estrogenic, and the salicylic acid is also known to be anti-estrogenic. So, so that may be helping at least locally change the hormonal balance. And basically, that's another mechanism of action that um, that medicine refuses to admit. They prefer to easy explanation. Oh, it's just killing the bacteria, and that's how it relieves the acne. Well, sometimes people apply way too little, and basically it affects the entire arm or like the entire back or the entire face, and it's not enough, the antibacterial effect is not enough to explain it because they just put a little bit on their, you know, let's say a one week, and then the entire face became clean. So that's clearly some kind of other effect involved, and uh, my guess is the changing the hormonal balance. And sorry, just one more thing before we move on to the what to put on the skin is talk about um, cascara, because I think a lot of women are really constipated and they don't realise that, you know, like your body gets rid of endotoxin and estrogen when you yep. poop. So if you if you're backed up, it's accumulating in your system. So can you talk about cascara? Why well-aged cascara? Your proper good cascara is so good. So one of one of the the strongest uh, factors in in decreased digestive speed uh, with with increased aging. I don't know if you noticed, but most most women start to have digestive problems, especially constipation in the late twenties, early thirties, and it only becomes worse with age unless they address it. Right. Um, so so the Studies with animals have shown that estrogen is the, the great barrier to motility. So if you lower estrogen by any means, uh, you tend to also resolve the digestive issues as well. Um, and what's the reason for high estrogen? Well, many, well, stress is one. Poor liver function is also a very, very common one. Uh, and low thyroid, probably above all. Uh, so basically, if you're drinking too much alcohol, um, not that many of women out there are, but a lot, a lot of people now these days are using alcohol to cope with the pandemic craziness that is around us. Uh, keep in mind that that is directly interfering with, with your digestion because it increases the estrogen in the inside of the body because ethanol burdens the liver. So while there's ethanol in your system, the, the liver cannot really de detoxify as much estrogen as it normally can. And, and basically the estrogen builds up and that can create digestive issues and also the skin issues. And of course, the backing up thing by increasing endotoxin that adds to the issue and, create, and exacerbates it. So, so making sure estrogen is kept in check is very important. Uh, aspirin is a great natural remedy to keep estrogen in check. Vitamin E is another one. Um, and basically, if things are, you know, if you're still experiencing issue with the constipation, cascara is a very common remedy. Um, and it's known, uh, if they call it a 
uh, stimulant laxative, but it's really a misnomer because there's nothing stimulating in the actual cascara itself. The way it works is that because um, the, the emotin, which is present in cascara, that's the main active factor, and also in the aloe vera juice, it contains another type of emotin called, called aloe emotin, <laughs> naturally, but it's still largely the emotin molecule um, with very little variation between cascara and aloe. Uh, it has strong anti-inflammatory effect and basically draws water from the intestine inside towards the stool, and that softens the stool and also helps the intestine shrink. Um, and if that, when that happens, that tends to improve the transit. Uh, and also, um, the, the, the emotin and the other anthraquinones present in the cascara, they also have direct antibacterial effect, as I mentioned, because being quinones, they, they can kill bacteria directly through contact by increasing reactive oxygen species. So really, cascara is a great laxative, but its laxative effects are unlike those of other laxatives that the doctors uh, will prescribe because it doesn't really stimulate or irritate the intestine. It, improve, it lowers inflammation, lowers the amount of bacteria that is in, in the intestine, and also improves the function of the intestinal epithelial cells because anything is capable of withdrawing electrons is going to improve met metabolism. So if the intestinal cells are doing well, producing enough energy, they will be able to contract. I mean, because the, the motility depends on the contraction of the smooth muscles that are surrounding your intestinal tract. And those, the, the ability to contract depends on energy. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed yourself, if when you're really tired and lactic acid has built up in your muscles, you, you cannot even do one rep with a, with a weight that you can normally do 10 if you're fresh, right? Well, the same thing happens down in the intestinal tract too. If basically there's a big buildup of lactic acid and underproduction of energy, uh, basically the, the motility of your intestine will suffer tremendously. And emoting helps to improve that by improving the, the, the metabolic rate, the oxidative metabolism of the, of the gastrointestinal tract. Okay, awesome. Um, and, you know, make sure it's well-aged. Yes. Yeah, cascara. <laughs> It's been given the ticket of approval by Ray. We've sent it to Ray, and he he loves it. What's the issue when it's not well aged? Um, I think it well. It comes down to the contents of the emotin. Basically, if it's not well well aged when they harvest it sooner, because they want to sell it. You know, if there's a great demand for it, sometimes they'll harvest it from the tree before it's fully it's fully uh, matured. And, and basically, it's been shown that the amount of 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 emotin that is present in the bark increases with its age. So you're just going to have a, a much, uh, you know, uh, less effective version. And, and there's some toxins also present in the bark when it's still younger because the bark, the tree wants to protect itself from being eaten by all kinds of animals, especially the uh, herbivores. Like the goats are notorious for eating the bark. Like they're really, I almost feel like they have a, they have a grudge against trees. Because even if there's food, there's uh, grass, you know, plenty of grass around, they'll often go and even climb on the trees and, and, and nibble on the bark. And the tree hates that, obviously. So most of the water is actually, most of the nutrients are transferred through the bark. And the, the tree responds by producing and storing a lot of toxins in the bark that's still alive, still functioning as a connective and transport tissue. And when the bark is well-aged, in other words, when it's already dry, uh, those toxins are, are, are largely absent. Mm. Um, so, you know, less, so if you're not using aged bark, it will be less effective and potentially irritating to, to your intestine. Okay, cool. So let's talk about um, creams and things that you put on your skin. And, you know, like I wasn't and I'm really aware of this until I started working with Emma. And, you know, like you pick up, 
nearly every bloody cream out there. And it's got an ingredient list this long. So it's full of seed oils, but it's also, uh, and vegetable oils. It's also got lots of like perfumes and additives, which right. are right. estrogenic. So you can, before we talk about why that the putting the vegetables on your skin isn't great, can you talk about, you know, why all these perfumes and things are estrogenic in nature? Uh, a lot of the perfumes, um, a, lo- a lot of the of the of the artificially created scents that are there are actually endocrine disruptors. Mm-hmm. Um, even some of the natural ones are there. I'll send you a study that was done last year. It's one of the most extensive that I've ever seen, and he found that even uh, benign sounding substances such as uh, you know the extracts from lavender oil, uh, extracts from tea tree oil, um, extracts from a number of different popular herbs that are used as fragrances. Uh, in the perfume industry are actually very potent endocrine disruptors. Um, and they tend to have, because most plants, the endocrine disruptors coming from plants tend to be estrogenic in nature and or anti-androgenic. And the worst ones are also anti-thyroid as well. Uh, of course, nothing naturally available probably even comes close to competing with the synthetic ones, such as uh, bisphenol A or bisphenol S present in plastics, um, those are probably by far the worst, or even some of the synthetic pesticides. They're also notorious for being uh, uh, potent endocrine disruptors. But still, uh, many of the fragrances that are out there, um, you know, you can probably take the name and Google it and add to the name endocrine disruptor, and you're going to come up with studies showing. When you say endocrine disruptor, can you just, sorry, explain to people what that means? Well, it basically acts, it, it acts like one or more of the hormones that we're naturally producing. It has the same effect because it's capable of attaching to the same uh, area of the cell that the natural hormone would do. So even if you have low levels of, let's say, estrogen, but you're using an estrogenic substance coming from nature and you're using it in high amounts, soy is probably the, the classic example. It's got phyto, they're called phytoestrogens. So in other words, estrogenic molecules that act just like estrogen, but are coming from plants, hence the phyto, right? So soy is the most potent phytoestrogens and hops as well, these two cultures. Um, and basically when you ingest even small amounts of that, they're equivalent to essentially being on a birth control pill and taking a synthetic estrogen. That's how strong they are. Um, and it's been known for, you know, for centuries that pregnant women should not be dealing with hops, not be picking up hops or processing them in any point in any shape or form, or should not actually be handling legumes because all of the legumes are producing soy being a legume plant. It's not just the soy, beans do it, lentils do it. Lentils are probably safer than the other legumes, but all legume plants produce highly potent estrogenic molecules that act just like the estrogen you're producing yourself. So that's what I mean by endocrine disruptor. It's producing an, a hormonal imbalance without actually uh, you taking any form of a hormone. So these are non-hormonal substances with hormonal effects. Um they're, they're ubiquitous in nature. So how I, and because this is just a really simplified way, this is how I get my head around it, um, you know, for all the simple people. It's like hormones tell cells what to do and they've got right. these receptors which are sort of like locks basically and the hormone comes yeah. in and fits that receptor and it tells the cell, do this. And exactly. And so these, um, they're not estrogen, but they, they can fit the same receptor. And so they tell Precisely. the same thing. Right. That's sort of how exactly. I understand it in my head. And so these chemicals are going to the cells. And what and the issue with estrogen is talk about, I mean, we've already talked about it, probably need to cover it again. Well, but- I mean, it's a growth, it's a pro-growth, pro-carcinogenic hormone, and it's de-differentiating. In other words, estrogen and cortisol are primitive hormones. Their goal is to help you grow and survive at the expense of everything else that makes you human. So any higher cognitive function, creativity, sexual function, 
uh, fertility, all of these things, uh, uh, you know, maintaining good muscle health, good digestive health, good hormonal health, because these are stress slash survival hormones. The assumption is when they're there is that you need to survive and everything else takes a second place, right? Mm. Um, so really, they're, they're okay when you're in, in acute kind of trouble, um, you know, but they're not meant to be elevated chronically. And our modern lifestyle through all the other, you know, the hormonal endocrinoceptors we're ingesting, the stress that we're constantly exposed to, the toxic environment that we live in, uh, both figuratively and, uh, and literally, right? All of these things put us in a continuous chronic stress state. And basically, those hormones are not meant to be that way because they can cause things to get out of control. Uh, since the fundamental property of every cell, the primordial property of every cell is to grow, to form colonies, um, and if there is no restrictive mechanism, which to, to which uh, can impose shape in on those uh, masses of cells, right? Then basically you get cancer. Really, that's what cancer is all about. Something, some, some part of the restrictive mechanism that makes your liver look like a liver and behave like a liver was basically turned off or went amok, and basically now your liver starts to grow uncontrollably. And you're producing these cells that no longer look like a liver. It's like most of the liver tumors, they're they're not. They don't make your liver grow larger. They, I'm sorry, the, it, your liver with cancer does not look like a larger liver. It starts to look like this amorphous mass that is no longer a liver. It's composed of liver cells, but they're no longer acting like liver, right? So that's what, what estrogen and cortisol do. So anything that is capable of activating those same systems that estrogen and or cortisol are doing is, for all intents and purposes, an estrogen. It doesn't matter if we're producing it ourselves or not. If it has those same effects, it is an estrogen. And that's why the ones coming from soy are called phytoestrogens. Not just from soy. Anything anything capable of uh, causing the same effects of estrogen and coming from a plant is now officially known as phytoestrogen. They're also, and they're much more rare, they're, they're things called phytoprogestogens. In other words, coming from plants and being capable of acting just like progesterone. Two of the famous ones, and actually there, there are Wikipedia pages about this if people want to read. Type phytoestrogen in Google, First link that will come back as a result is a Wikipedia page. It's a really extensive explanation. And there's also phytoprogestogen. Type that thing in Google. Then the Wikipedia page will come out and will show you that uh, some of the most common ones are things found in citrus fruits um, or chamomile tea. Uh, apigenin, naringenin, naringin, right? All flavones or flavanones, uh, they tend to be progestogenic and anti-estrogenic in nature. But again, they're much more rare. So if you're getting a lot of these fragrances from natural sources, chances are, um, and if they are if they are endocrine disruptors, they're capable of acting like the hormones, they will most likely be estrogenic in nature. Mm-hmm. And there's an additional compound to that, which is the, the structure of the molecule and how saturated or, or unsaturated it is. Older studies in the 50s and 60s show that you can trigger an estrogenic response even without binding to that lock and key mechanism. So mm-hmm. in other words, you can have a molecule that cannot get into the lock, right? But by virtue of how unsaturated it is, it can actually diffuse into the cell because the cell is permeable to these substances because it's just a, a, a mixture of fat and proteins and water, right? And then a fatty molecule, which is what a lot of these fragrances are, uh, look fatty-like, not, not doesn't always have to be fatty acid. And based on how many double bonds it has, that determines how unsaturated it is. And estrogen, the hormone itself, is also happens to be highly unsaturated. So they determined very long time ago that molecules that are unsaturated, even if they are not the same structure as estrogen, are capable of triggering largely similar effects even without binding to the lock, right? 
Exactly. Pufos, you can think of Pufos as the epitome, as the prime example of a non non structurally non-estrogenic estrogen. It has the almost the exact same effects without actually binding directly to that lock to that lock in the cell. Isn't that crazy? Emma, can you just quickly go over some other things apart from the fragrances that are in these cosmetics that are also estrogenic? So I think, oh, my God, I used to, like, slather myself with fake tan. Oh, the, the parabens, like uh, all of these waxes they put in there. Um, let's see, some of the, some of the uh, solvents that they put in there are also pretty toxic. Uh, they use some, some uh, alcohol solvents, but they're not the regular ethanol, which by itself is relatively benign, but if you do it at a too high concentration and too often, it can dehydrate and irritate the skin, but that's still relatively benign. Some of the other ones that are used in the cosmetic industry are themselves directly toxic. They're known carcinogens, um, but of course, you know, if industry wants to sell its wares, it approaches the regulatory agency and says, Why don't, here is a study which shows that as long as you don't do it, I don't know, every day or like every other day, and you do it below certain amounts of a certain amount applied to the skin on a daily basis, then this is okay. And then the agency will, will create so-called like, uh, you know, safety level limits, right? Uh, but then if you look at the in vitro studies, which they do with cells, then you will see that for many of these chemicals, there is no safety level. They were capable of causing cancer at any concentration, as long as the exposure was long enough. Well, guess what? With cosmetics, you tend to use them more than once, right? I mean, you know, that thing. Typically, you use if you if you like if there's a cream you like and you're using it, uh, you know, on a regular basis. Some women use these for decades, and they're they're trusting. They're saying, "Oh, it's L'Oreal, or it's or it's like uh, Chanel or some other company." They certainly know what they're doing, and they're not going to release anything that's that's poisoning us. Well, like any large company, they will they will do everything possible to lower the cost of production, and the way they do that is by create using these. Uh, most of them that are actually industrial waste chemicals. They're coming from the petrol industry or like the plastic industry. And they, they you know, the, 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 the perfume industry says, oh, they're really good as like enhancing transdermal absorption. We don't care that they're toxic. We're going to produce a study here that says they're, as long as you follow these rules, they're safe, right? Well, first of all, probably not true. I mean, they fudge the data. And second of all, how many of those people that are really, that even if you put a warning on the cream somewhere in the brochure, how many of those people are going to read that entire brochure and say, oh, it says here not to use more than three times daily, right? Or like not to use every day. Many of them were like, ah, what are the directions? Okay, it says, you know, uh, apply liberally or something. And then, I mean, over time, you tend to forget about all these warnings and you focus only on the good parts, right? That's mm -hmm. how brain is structured. You tend to not self-depress yourself because it's just not good for your health. So if there's even is a severe warning, unless you, unless you directly experience the side effects, over time, you'll tend to ignore those warnings and say, ah, it's probably rare. Something happened to me. And I think and would you agree that a lot of the, with a lot of these toxins, it's almost more important to be discerning with them in your, say, body cream than it is in your food? Because at least when you eat food, your digestive tract can metabolize it, can detoxify it somewhat, can filter yep. it. But when you stick it on your skin after you've had a hot shower, your pores are open, you suck it straight in the bloodstream. Yep. And then, then the liver has a much, first of all, all your organs are exposed. The moment it enters the bloodstream, then basically all bets are off. It can go to your brain, it can go to your liver, it can go to all the organs. And as a so-called, the second pass, the second phase detoxification system, which also involves the liver, but that means after the toxic 
has had a has had a chance to circulate and poison everything, all of your organs, then maybe over time the liver can excrete it and maybe even harm the liver in the process. But at least when you're ingesting it, if you ingested some kind of a toxin, uh, because everything goes through the liver uh, except for the very long chain fatty acids, which tend to bypass it and go into the lymphatic system, tends to go through the liver and the liver can largely dispose off of most of it. Now it may harm the liver, right? But those, those side effects are typically usually seen uh, very quickly because uh, you start getting yellow face, the white of your eyes started getting yellow, you start getting bloated, start retaining water, all signs of you know, impaired liver function. And people will freak out and you know, start to look for trouble and say, okay, what caused this, right? And even the doctor will start asking. But if you're applying it to your skin, sometimes you, you, know, you may go unnoticed for years before uh, you know, it manifested the toxicity in some organ and even then, basically, even if the doctors, let's say, God forbid, they develop cancer of some organ, they do a biopsy, they take a biopsy of that organ, they're not going to be looking for those chemicals because for many of them, they don't, they don't even admit that they're carcinogenic, right? And even if they are, uh, the doctor is not, doesn't know what to look for. They're going to say, let's see if this is cancer or not. But they're not going to check any of the 10,000 substances that are out there that can possibly be causing. It costs an exorbitant amount of money unless you know specifically that you got poisoned by a specific cream and then they maybe will look for that specific substance. And even then, what are you going to do? If the regulatory agency says it's safe, then they're probably going to blame it back and say, oh, you use too much of it or too often, or you didn't follow the rules or you did something else, right? So so ultimately, you got to be very cognizant of what you're putting on your skin because many of these creams, even though they're meant and marketed for external consumption and, and localized effect only, uh, they actually, many, multiple studies have shown that most cosmetics absorb systemically. And just as Emma mentioned, if you've had a shower, if you've actually drank alcohol, it has been shown to actually cause it to cause increased skin permeability up to 24 hours after you're drinking alcohol. So if you're drinking more than two glasses of alcohol daily, you are actually chronically uh, predisposed to absorbing a lot of toxins through your skin, whether that's the cream or not. Let me just turn on the light. Sorry about this. Uh-huh. Maybe Emma, then can you talk a bit about to finish off some of the ingredients that you've used in our skincare and why? Oh, should we tell people? Yeah, well, this I'm not going to release this till just before our skincare comes out, so it'll be perfect okay, cool. timing. Yeah, <laughs> have secret stuff. Um, all right. So, oh, I could look at our label here. I'm not going to show you the packaging yet, though. <laughs> um, yeah, well, no poofers at all. Everything's 100 saturated in terms of the fatty acids, which is was the prime priority when we're having a brand called Saturé. It had to be completely saturated. Um, and if that's a new thing for people, we'll put up a lot of information on the site why that was so important. But um, but basically coconut-derived saturated fats, um, cholesterol is a big part of it, which was really hard to get. Um, and it's been shown to be something that decreases with age, the amount of cholesterol in our skin, very important to keeping the skin healthy and plump. Um, lanolin, lanolin-derived sort of ingredients too. There's caffeine, there's naringenin and napigenin and things from the citrus we talked about. What have we got? Is it nice? Sorry. Is it nice? Definitely. Yeah. Um, what, else? what about aspirin? Like salicylic We've acid. We've got salicylic acid, aspirin, correct. We've got a little bit of camphor. We've got um, some copper. We've got the CoQ10 as one of the quinines. Um, urea. What else? What else? What, what about eugenol? Remember, you emailed Ray and you yeah, asked. Yeah, like eugenol, exactly, because that was Excellent. that was a big battle we had to keep um, 
when it comes to preservatives, you know, especially when you're doing something in bulk on mass and you're required to put an element of preservation there, which makes sense, and you don't want bacteria and molds growing in it, but at the same time, every preservative on offer was just it came with some downside and that it's really horrendous stuff that they can, you know, cause problems with. So we went through all the preservatives and eugenol was one thing that Ray had mentioned and was used widely in the past in skincare and foods, yeah. um, completely safe. And it has some of its own direct benefits to the skin as well. Um, it was a good excerpt I'll find. Um, but, yeah, we managed to find eugenol and it was one that the manufacturer at the time wasn't very excited about. They just said, but this is so old-fashioned. <laughs> like, this is like, good. <laughs> so what, what's, wrong, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. When and people tell me, Georgie, yeah, 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 you're so old-fashioned, you should... You should live in, in step with, uh, oh. you should keep abreast with modern technology, to which I always respond. Correct. As far as I'm concerned, it peak with frozen pizza. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, this is the thing. And these things have only fallen out of favor because perhaps they found something that had a longer shelf life or a bigger profit margin, or they could manufacture more easily in a factory. So we've had to draw back on a lot of these old fashioned ingredients, but we're excited to be able to, you know, bring them back in. Um, uh, anyway, I haven't got my complete list here, but there's some of the main, some of the main things. Do you know what I really right. liked about it, Emma, too? And I feel like a lot of women might be like me is I really, you know, used to love the foaming cleansers. And then you're like, oh, no, here they just really strip your skin. And, you know, like I'm always like, I'll give anything a go. And I was thinking, oh, this oil cleanser that Emma's made, I'm like how is it really going to get the makeup off? And I remember the first time I used it and then used the warm wash, I was like, oh, wow, my face feels really clean. And it feels like not like tight and dry anymore. Yeah. And you know, I only had to use like the, the good thing about it, I think one of the good things is the moisture. You don't have to use a lot. No. So it lasts. Yeah. yeah. And then in the morning you get up and your skin feels really fresh. Like you don't have to put more moisturizer on. You'd, I only wash my face once a day. I don't even wash it sometimes if I don't wear makeup. Mm-hmm. Like it just is fine, you know. Well, I think it's important, particularly in the morning. Look, unless you've got all the issues we talk about where you're manufacturing far too much sebum and perhaps it's something you need to address internally anyway. But in the mornings, the, the naturally occurring oils that accumulate on the skin your body has created, I mean, they've got your natural moisturising factors right there, this stuff that no skincare can mimic, I mean, what the body can produce. So yeah. unless it's excessive and your body's quite happy with it, I would leave those oils on the skin in the morning. Um, perhaps you might want to, you know, add a bit of moisture to your cheeks or something, but don't go washing it off with a detergent because mm. these are the things that you want to encourage your body to make and you don't want to um, strip them to a point your body then is confused as to how much oil it needs to create and then perhaps then you have issues with too much oil production. So I think a big part of what we want to encourage too is, yeah, less is more definitely. Um, and that's why also with the cream, I didn't want to call it a moisturiser as such because I think that's almost, I don't know, it's, it's almost assuming the body isn't capable of moisturising its own skin. I mean, when the skin works correctly, it moisturises, it exfoliates, it, it does its own thing. But we've just come in there and kind of assume our incredible bodies are quite stupid and it needs help with moisturisers and this and lotions and exfoliants and all the stuff. But I think if we can pull back and support the body instead in, mm. um, in, for the skin to function itself. And perhaps bring some of these substances in that further support it and further protect it. But um, yeah, not to assume that the skin doesn't have its own incredible complexity already. 
And the other thing that I've been doing, which I've talked about for a while, is Georgie using your um, cordonon. You know, like you said, putting it yes. an eye around the crow's feet and up on the and like it's here, here, like anywhere, even on the neck. Yeah. Yep, it's made a difference. Even Craig says, your skin's looking like he's obviously been using the saturated stuff. We're like to the end of it now, but then putting that on as well, which has made a difference to the lot for sure. It's made a difference. I can well, Georgie that. can provide all those steroids that yeah. we're not allowed to put in our moisturizer in Australia. So we encourage really like what about pregnenolone? What about pregnenolone? What about pregnenolone? Is pregnenolone also banned? Yeah, we couldn't. Well, um, uh, yeah, I'll never say never. So we'll keep digging till we find the source. But um, just buy our stuff and then buy some. Yeah, I mean, just get some idea labs and and boost it up. Just a little bit around the yeah. It it really is amazing. So what about vitamin D? I mean, even though most people think of it as a vitamin, it's actually a steroid. It's produced from cholesterol, and it's got, it's been shown that when topically applied, is a great anti-aging effect. Really? Uh, you check, yeah, you just have to check. What, what yeah, it, and that was crossing over with the, the supplement industry and being a yeah, yeah. again mm, trickiness. Yeah, but again, I'm you know, and there's there's other things we want to do with methylene blue as well. But that that was warning, warning bells with a, the skin manufacturer. But we'll yeah, we'll continue to explore what's capable or get around it somehow. Yeah. You know what I really like about it, Emma, and obviously I'm biased, but because I really like simplicity, like I don't like to do a million things. So this is so good. It's just like the moisturizer, you cleanse your face once a day, put a little bit of moisturizer on, use the body moisture, and that's it, you're done. You know, like you're not having to use all these fucking eye creams and these different <laughs> creams and like a million different products. Um, and, yeah, I feel like my skin is the best it's ever been. Obviously my nutrition is good too and we've been eating the liver for a long time and, but yeah, it feels inside stuff. I'm sure Georgie has like a seven step routine every morning. Yeah. Do you, Georgie? No, no. Well, I actually I use a, either a sulfur soap or a soap with salicylic acid, and yeah. actually found a vendor that sells both of them in, in like mixed together in the same soap. Um, so I, I mean, I check my face in the morning. If it's too oily, I would wash it with that soap. Yeah. Um, if it's not, then I'll just wash it with water, right? Uh, but really, my routine is mostly internal. Like I basically try to like eat right and uh, you know not overdo the alcohol, which uh, it's kind of hard in the United States because everybody you meet, you know, uh, yeah, that, that w- wants to go out and drink, right? And um, yeah. my clients want to drink, and you you you're you cannot do good business if you refuse. <laughs> I just put it this way. <laughs> Oh, but just so, okay, Georgie, can you come up with something? Because I say this to Greg because, you know, I used to be a huge drinker and I still love drinking, but I just don't do it much because I just feel rubbish the next day. I don't like how much you feel. But can you come up with something that could allow me to, you know, just drink a bottle of champagne and then wake up tomorrow and be good and be perfect? I already have it. I already have it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So uh, it's it's the exemestain that I mentioned to Emma. So it's a very strong aromatase inhibitor. And I talked to Ray about it and he confirmed. So back in the day, like maybe in the 60s, they, they basically wanted to see what's causing the hangovers in people as they age, right? Because they become more and more severe. Um, and basically they took these animals and they had both males and females and they castrated them. And then, it's, you know, basically when they castrated them, uh, they basically noticed that the, that the animals uh, were, were developing um, uh, basically a... Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. They they, they were uh, yeah. The animals uh, became uh, started developing much more severe hangovers, right? Mm-hmm. And to find out which part, with, with castrate an animal, you're usually removing both the androgens and the estrogens. So then, basically, they they took castrated animals and they ejected one group 
with an androgen, another one with an estrogen, and a third one with an antiestrogen, and a fourth one with a combination of androgen and antiestrogen. And the one that the last group that got basically the androgen plus the antiestrogen outdrank the young controls by a factor of five to one uh, without even getting drunk. Uh, so it comes down essentially to the estrogen overburdening the liver as we age and probably in combination with the endotoxin. And basically it comes down to liver health. And also they found out the amount of enzymes that are necessary to, to metabolize the alcohol. There are two enzymes, alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase. Niacinamide is a cofactor for both. So there are several studies that show that taking vitamin B3 uh, accelerates the metabolism of alcohol. So here's the thing. It's going to reduce your hangover, but it's also going to reduce the buzz. <laughs> you're saying take niacinamide oh, if yeah. you're drinking. How much? Yes. Uh, basically 500 milligrams to a gram for a very heavy drinking session. A lot less if, it, if you're only having like a glass or two. But again, it's going to reduce the fun too because you will not be getting as drunk. It's going to, you will very quickly metabolize the alcohol. The final product is acetic acid, which is in vinegar and water and carbon dioxide. So you're going to be able to drink more, but it will be less fun, right? But with the with the uh, anti-estrogen, and I've tasted examistate of myself and I've, yeah. drank with, I've drank with Russians and those yeah. people can drink and I've drank with Australians and those people can drink too. <laughs> So in both cases, the examestain basically completely prevented the, the hangover the next day. Uh, I was, I went home. yeah, I was, I was drunk, but I was drunk in a buzzed way. I wasn't nauseous. I didn't have indigestion. I didn't have headache. And I went to bed. It, it basically, it worked like almost like a sleeping pill, like the alcohol, which is how it used to affect me when I was younger. When I was drunk, I would just get, you know, first of all, gregarious and chatty and whatnot. And if you keep drinking, eventually I'll get sleepy. You may even pass out, but you wake up the next morning and you're fine, right? I mean, maybe a little bit like uh, it will take you a few hours to recover, but you will not be, I don't know, a walking mess for like the yeah. next. <laughs> and you hate yourself and like, I will never drink again <laughs> yeah. in 48 hours. How many times I've said that in the past? <laughs> What's it called? What did you say? Every Friday. Oh, it's it's called Examestate. It's an aromatase inhibitor. It's spelled E-X-E. Yeah. M is in Mary. Yeah. E. S is in Sam, T is in Tom, A, N is in Nancy, E. And where do you get it from? Uh, you can buy it in bulk, bulk from many online pharmacies from China. I can send you a bottle if you want. Yeah, send me uh, a link. Try out. I'm, yeah. I'll test it. I'll test it. He's getting ready for a Christmas party. It's Christmas, exactly. The next time <laughs> we have a drink is Christmas Day. And we're okay. doing like all these fruity cocktails. And obviously we'll eat heaps of food too, but I'll drink throughout the day like I don't drink that often anymore but I'll feel shit the next day because obviously I'm not used to drinking but yeah I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll so I could order this and I'll test it I'll let and, you know. and give it give it to the husband too it helps for both uh, men he and doesn't women. like it he doesn't drink, he doesn't drink. at all Georgie ever. oh doesn't drink at all never. really never yeah. oh my god I know well it makes for a very awkward down, very awkward spouse when you go to parties <laughs> he's like here's my husband and they're like hey would you like a drink mate no, I don't drink. <laughs> he drinks Coke. Oi. He drinks Coke. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be your test stomach. So I was, you know, straight on putting the cordon on, on and it worked. So I'll see what happens. I tried the examination for alcohol yeah. is great. By the way, it, it greatly improves digestion because it lowers estrogen so much. Uh, several women that, that basically bought it from other people. Uh, it, it was developed as a drug for breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then I found out that a lot of bodybuilders use it. Greg probably knows about it. 
and basically, when they abuse steroids that give them gyno, gynecomastia, exemestane is like the number one treatment for it. Uh, it's because it was an anti-estrogenic thing, anti-estrogenic drug. But I found that it works tremendously well for alcohol, especially the heavy drinking sessions where you know you can't avoid it. You know you're going to hate yourself the next morning. And then usually if I don't take it, next day I'm out. I mean, I'm trying to avoid the emails. I'm trying to cancel meetings. So I look like a mess. But with that thing, just a few drops. And a bottle will last you for a while. Just a few, maybe three or four drops before, about an hour before drinking. It will last you through the entire night, even at least 24 hours, because it has very long half-life. It basically can be taken every other day, even for breast cancer. Still works tremendously. And for drinking, you just take it, you know, four or five drops an hour before drinking and you're golden. I mean, I don't have have those drinking sessions like that anymore where I'm like, oh, my God, I want to kill myself the next day. But even when we have a few drinks, I still feel it the next day. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's there because the alcohol is still there. If the liver cannot metabolize it, it keeps circulating because there's the tissues cannot use it, right? So it keeps circulating. The body treats it as a toxin, right? It doesn't like it. So you get the flushing. You get the headache. All of these are symptoms of the of the fact that the cells don't want it. They're, yeah. they're by its presence, and the cells get in this, into this inflammatory state. And that's one of the reasons why aspirin helps. So mm-hmm. if, in the absence of examestane, if you type in Google aspirin coffee hangover, it mm-hmm. will show several studies. And I think the article that I saw was in the BBC. It was done in Australia. And they said, you know, uh, short of anti-serotonin drugs, and I'll, I'll tell you the story about it later, and anti-estrogen drugs, the best home remedy that you can have that is over-the-counter is a mix of coffee and aspirin. Uh, and if you go to Las Vegas, they have these buses that are circulating the casinos. They call, them, they call them the party buses. And basically, there's a doctor inside, a licensed doctor and a nurse. And for the low price of a few hundred dollars, they will put you on an IV, which has vitamin B3, vitamin B1. It has uh, either examestain or an anti-serotonin drug given for nausea called ondansetron, which Ray talked about. And so the medicine knows very well how to treat hangovers. I just think they don't want to. I mean, basically, <laughs> they consider it a moral hazard. Because uh, if, you, if you can completely get rid of the hangovers, people will be drinking like water every day. Oh, and- I know. Oh, totally. <laughs> I always say, like, oh, I just love getting pissed, but I'm like, oh, I just don't like feeling shitty. You know, it's, yeah. it's really fun. Like. <laughs> It's a, it's a great, it's a great social disinhibitor. Yeah. I think, Kitty, we should add to this title: binge drinking tips with Georgie and Kitty. Now, look, I'm we can do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it would just be nice, you know. Like I still have the occasional drink now. Like we had Craig's birthday, and we went out and we had some cocktails at lunch. You know, except uh, Craig didn't. No, nah, Craig didn't. Oh, I did. Sorry, I should say. <laughs> so it's just like usually special occasions, but I guess it's like everything. In moderation, right? Like, have yeah. It- most most people who do weightlifting, um, uh, they don't they, they avoid alcohol because. And I would ask them, they usually know that it's highly catabolic. So if mm-hmm. you lift weights and you're drinking regularly, you will not be putting on muscle mass. Even you don't with, want. yeah, yeah, you don't mm-hmm. want. Yeah, exactly. We want lots of muscle. Um, that's <laughs> awesome. I'm going to email you so you can send me the link, Georgie. I'll email you after this. For the examination, for your yeah. dancing one, or for which one? For the ex. The second one you said. No, the the one that you said for the drinking. Oh, the exam is dead. Yeah. No, I'll send you one. Don't worry. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a bottle and send you. Well, you send it, post it to me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I mean, same address, right? Yeah, same address. 
all which, which address the one that we use for the big orders or your your address which which you normally order like stuff i'll email you? you this new address because i don't know okay. if i've had i'm pretty sure i've had stuff emailed to this new address but i'll just email you just in case because we moved house i'll put a label on it that says like a vitamin e mix because it'll be <laughs> vitamin e i don't want to have customs to freak out because they see it they'll look it up they'll see it's yeah. a drug breast cancer yeah and then yeah. they'll probably block I'll, it. I'll test it and report back with everyone i'll test it on christmas day when i have my cocktails yeah okay, okay. all right do you want to add anything else do you think have we missed anything um, I mean, I think that's 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 pretty much it. Just you know, the general message: treat your skin as the mirror of your internal health. Mm. Uh, and basically, if you start seeing systemic, uh, consistent problems with your skin, then there's something that needs to be addressed either in your life, or you know, in in your food, or in your general you know uh, systemic health that's not right. And your skin is simply reacting; it's showing you, it's giving you like a surface symptom that a sign that something needs to be done. Mm. And all is the cream. I was going to yeah. say, I'll drop the link to the article, Emma's article that she did with you. I'll drop the link to Georgie's um, website as well and Emma's website and everyone's Instagram. I'll just drop everything in the show notes so people can check it out. Mm-hmm.